Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have our guest. The guest is Roger Green. Mr. Green has started working with One Worker, One Cooperative, and that's at Union Co-ops, to save Interfaith Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. So it's a fascinating story. Mr. Green, welcome. Hello. Hi, how you doing, sir? How are you? I'm doing great and glad you're on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. What I learned from you today. I'm looking forward to it also. Thank you. Can you tell us and the audience how you got involved and what is this Save the Interfaith Medical Center? Sure. We started organizing the same interface after there was something in the range of about 15 other hospitals that had been closed in Brooklyn. I mean, closed in New York City over the course of around, I'd say around seven years. Most of them were hospitals located within communities of color, which were predominated by poor, working poor, and working class constituents. And in this particular case, uh, two unions uh, joined in coalition with the larger community. The two major unions are Local 1199 Health Workers Union and New York State Nurses Association. And then there was an organization of clergy and elected officials who came together as well and some other academicians. All right. So um, what did you all do? How did you get this started? And how did you get involved? Well, I mean, I think for me, I had served in the uh, state legislature and kind of had an epiphany, if you will, when I was serving in the state legislature. Basically, I had been chairing the Committee on Children and Families, and we had a particular crisis related to the fact that many children, particularly children of color in central Brooklyn, had no access to a children's psychiatric hospital children who were facing, you know, emotional issues, psychiatric problems were being basically charged with going out of the borough as far as uh, in parts of upstate New York in order to secure uh, services. And so I had an opportunity to enact a bill to create a new psychiatric hospital for Central Brooklyn. And I felt very good about that. You know, we built it at a cost of around $54 million. It was state-of-the-art. And I recall the day that um, I was peacocking around when we were mm-hmm. you know, doing our first visit and tour of the hospital. And as we ended the tour, I asked the medical director, I said, well, 
how's things going? Is there any issues that you need us to work on? And there was a pregnant pause for a minute, and the medical director then turned to myself and my chief of staff and basically said, well, there is one problem. And we said, well, what's the problem? And he looked at us and he said, well, the children, they don't want to go home. And that struck me here, you know, uh, we're looking at children who were getting, what they say in the hood, three hots in a cot and, you know, a swimming pool and all these other kind of amenities. But when they went home, they were faced with the traumas that they, uh, originate from abject poverty and relative poverty. And it was at that point that I, my staff, and some other folks started talking about the role that hospitals have in communities, which are not simply as institutions to provide patient care, but they're anchor institutions that are or should be aligned with the larger well-being of the community, including the uh, economy. Um, and so when Interfaith was closing, um, our concern was not only about the patient care, and of course, that was the primary concern that we had, uh, but we also knew that this was going to have an impact on basically accelerating the economic decline of the community, you know, the marginalization of the community. And so at that point, we began doing an autopsy and saying, how is it that, number one, we don't have control over our institutions? And we came to a conclusion, a term that we use and we use often now called social welfare colonialism, that a number of the institutions... Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Social welfare colonialism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to go over that one too quickly. Okay, I, all right. I got the term. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So when when we, we talk about social welfare colonialism, we're saying that we're observing that institutions that had been developed that were supposed to serve our communities were currently being managed by a handful or a quartery of bureaucrats and plutocrats usually who did not live in the community, but were extracting resources uh, for their benefit as opposed to the benefit of the patient, of the workers, of the larger community, and that this extraction continues to damage our communities. So we, we began thinking about a new way of doing business and started organizing to move in that direction. Our coalition was initially called the Coalition to Save Interfaith, and we made a conscious decision to change our name to the Coalition to Transform, looking at the reality that we needed to build democratic accountability uh, from the bottom up and controlling the institutions that included the selection of the new board and uh, a new uh, CEO, uh, where the community uh, leadership, including organized labor, along with uh, other actors in the community, could sit down and create a criteria for leadership and then select who we wanted for the institutions. So, and, Roger, what you're saying is extremely powerful. I just want to make sure I'm getting it and the, and the audience is getting it. So you had 15 hospitals that closed. You created this new 
$15 million psychiatric psychiatric hospital, and the kids don't want to go home. Right. And so you and, and so you get a sense that you start looking at the role of the hospital, the role of the school, the role of these different institutions, and you say, okay, what's happening now is that these schools, these hospitals particularly, are now run by folks that don't live in the community, and they're extracting the profits and taking them out of the community. Yes, that's right. So you want to change that paradigm. You want to change that way. So you, instead of saving, you said, okay, now we want to transform this institution. Yes. Right. Okay. I I got it. Transform. And so you you're looking at, at a way now that you can you the community can uh, hire the managers, uh, be on the board, control what's what's going on. Exactly. And looking at this is also being aligned with um, the practice of democracy. You know, I, we came to the conclusion that part of what happens in our society at this time is that we have these anti-democratic institutions that contribute to both the stasis within the institutions, but also they don't contribute to addressing the major problems that we have in our community. So we also looked at this in the context of our health and wealth are inextricably related, uh, well, how health is inextricably related to one's wealth. The issue of uh, abject well, poverty. Before you, before you go to the wealth, and I want to come back to that, but who are who are these anti-democratic institutions now? You said that you, you found out there's anti-democratic institutions that are, have control over these institutions. Yeah. So in the context of the healthcare system, you have um, you see this in other parts of the country, and at least in the context of um, of healthcare in. Um, New York City and Detroit, Arizona, there are certain sectors of the healthcare system who are now controlled by private equity firms. Private equity firms will come in and literally purchase the hospitals, privatize the hospitals, or in in the case of New York, they'll attempt to privatize uh, nursing homes. And the role of the private equity funds are not related to patient care or community development. They're looking for return on investment. And traditionally, they will extract as many resources they can, including uh, reducing patient care by reducing the workforce. And usually within five years, they sell uh, the healthcare institution. And in many cases, what we found is that the sale of the assets go to the real estate industry to build co-ops, condos for the one percenters. This is a pattern that's occurring across the country. And um, we've we've got to take us break, Roger. I I don't want to stop you, man. I like we got. I'm going to come back to privatization and return on investment is the main focus, profit, profit, profit. But we'll be right back after our intermission here.
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Roger Green on the show with us today. He was working in the state legislature and in late legislature in New York. I uh, got uh, an epiphany uh, looking at, uh, you know, kids cannot get hospitals. So he put together the law to build a hospital for kids, and the kids didn't want to go home. Yeah. Then he started looking and at the role of hospitals and found out that hospitals were being bought up by private equity firms. They would purchase a hospital. I'm going to use the word you didn't use. They would rape it, take everything that they could, take all of the cash out of they could. Then they would sell it, sell it to the real estate industry, and then they would build uh, apartment buildings or condos or co-ops. And then the building is, are, again, the wealthy. So you got the yeah. wealthy and the private equity firms taking the hospitals, and then that leaves the community devastated. More problems. Got it. Okay. Got, got the picture, good. man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this. And that's happening all over the U.S., not just New York. Yes, it is. Um, Detroit, parts of Arizona, and the nurse, nursing home sector here in New York City uh, in particular. And so it's it's something that, you know, uh, activist citizens should be aware of. And it contributes to not only poor patient care, but also the diminution of community. Um, hospitals are central. Uh, two communities. And so our coalition basically began uh, after doing what we called an autopsy. We wanted to look at a different way of doing business. Um, and one of the things that we concluded uh, was that, number one, there needed to be workplace democracy within the hospitals themselves, organizing teams for self-directed care. Uh, where possible, even exploring the opportunity of creating social cooperatives uh, as part of the healthcare system. Uh, and then also the hospital's supply chain back into the local economy. So in New York City, the supply chain uh, for the New York City healthcare system is $40 billion. Um, wait, wait, wait. Oh, 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 that's a V, not an M. $40 billion. Billion dollars. That's right. Yeah, forty billion dollars. Billion. So you're yeah. saying you're saying that the that the, the hospitals buy goods and services from different companies at the tune of forty billion dollars. That is food. That linens. That yeah, all, all of these different things that they need to run the hospital. That's right. But they're buying them. What we found after, you know, doing our research is that they had been buying many of these services, goods in particular, from right-to-work for less states. And even from corporations, some corporations that were pocketing money from the healthcare system, yet they were writing checks to the so-called Freedom Caucus uh, to undermine the Affordable Care Act. So. After securing that information, uh, we began the process of, you know, talking to 
uh, leadership of the uh, healthcare sector. And I have to say, they even thought that that was crazy and the elected officials. And so there is now a, a movement to redirect the supply chain back into the local economy. And of course, in doing that, what we're looking at is the formulation of unionized worker co-ops, combining the political power of organized labor with the economic innovation of worker co-ops, wherein the worker owners are securing uh, both um, economic security, a living wage, but also shared wealth, uh, broad-based profit sharing within certain enterprises that are aligned with the healthcare sector supply chain. And so that, that, that's basically what we're working on now. And the concept. Well, well I got. I got. I got to go. You, Roger. You say so much in ten minutes. You are saying that you got a forty billion dollar. And this is outside the hospital. Guess what the hospital buys? And yeah, they, they, detergent, furniture, laundry, all of that. That's forty billion dollars. Yeah. And they were buying this from states that did not have the right to work, That the states that didn't have unions. Is that what that is? States that were? Yes. 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 And and so they were outsourcing to, to, to right to work for less states. Absolutely. Yes. So they would get things done for, didn't have to pay workers a living wage, the less and less uh, income for the worker, okay, into this, into New York. So now That's you're looking at formalizing businesses that are owned by the employees that yes. was to buy this chain. Now, I guess you know the model in Cleveland where they formed three worker co-ops yes. to, to help supply linens and things to the hospitals and universities there, those institutions. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've actually okay. visited the, uh, the uh, Evergreen Co-ops. Evergreen, right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we went there with some of the hospital administrators. Um, you know, we were successfully able to secure a new hospital administrator for Interfaith Hospital. Her name is uh, LeRae Brown, very, very progressive sister. And so she's been with us on this, this sergeant now, working with us. We work with her. She meets with organized labor and leaders in the community on a regular basis every two weeks. Uh, we have an emergent strategic planning process, and part of the goal is to begin to realign the uh, the supply chain uh, for the uh, Brooklyn healthcare sector uh, back into the local economy, and to do it and, so that it's aligned with um, unionized worker co-ops. Okay, so when you when they buy local, like the the shareholders in a multi in a large corporation, those shareholders might not live in the community where the business is. As a matter of fact, they may not even live in the U.S. And so they take the profits out of the community. So what you're right. able to do by putting this the supply chain in the community is you keep that money in the community. And I really did not understand this multiplier effect that when I took it in school, I really didn't really understand it until I started on this program. And you get mm -hmm. that with the co-op, the people that own the co-op live in the community, they work in the community, and therefore they buy goods and services in the community, and that money stays in the community. It turns five, six, seven times, so it That's builds right. up the whole community. That's right. It builds the community up. That's right. That's fascinating. 
Now, why union, though? Why do you have to? Because when, when Michael Peck, who is a great friend of mine now, but when he first told me about union, I'm going, well, if you have a, a worker-owned co-ops, the workers own it. So I didn't see a need for a union. I, I kind of got a glimpse of that. But why do you need a union when you have a worker cooperative? Because we look at this in the context of the broader political economy, uh, which is always going to be influenced by various political and social forces, the issue of regulation, the issue of how some uh, companies are, uh, what kind of tax formulations you're going to have for different uh, enterprises, um, what types of um, fiscal policies are going to be uh, enacted into law that will have a direct impact on workers anyhow, whether they're organized or not. But when they're organized, and own their own, I think they'll have a better, be in a better position to particularly influence uh, public policy, uh, to engage in public policy interventions to protect their interests. And so that's one of the reasons that we think this is important. It's also important from this context of um, when we talk about the economic crisis within our nation at this point in time, it really centers around the whole issue of Wage stagnation is one part of it, but in fact, the largest problems that we're facing are the concentration of wealth in the hands of some and not others, and it's the wealth formation, the asset formation, asset aggregation that we need for workers. We need to move out of wage insecurity and wage stagnation, but at the same time provide for workers an opportunity to have shared wealth in the enterprises that they're, they're working in. And so that, that's what we think is important. So as the role of organized labor has been also primarily related to collective bargaining agreements, we think that's important. That's the historical standard that needs to be maintained. But workers also need to have shared wealth, um, particularly African-American workers and other uh, communities of color where currently the disparity, uh, the wealth inequality is so great uh, that it would take us another close to over 200 years to catch up with our white neighbors if we maintain the same type of um, enterprises that we have today. Uh, so we're saying that we need, you know, with Dr. Du Bois talked about the concept of economic innovations in the context of worker co-ops, but using also incorporating the power of organized labor to protect the, the interests of the worker owners. You know, um, I, it, it, in some ways, it's good news to hear you believe we could catch up in 200 years with the current situation. I don't think we could ever catch up. Okay. And that's why I, I love co-ops, because it's a way for us to really, I think right now, 57% of every new dollar goes to the one percenters. So every new dollar that's created in the U.S., 57% goes to the one percenters. So if you got 57% going to one percenters, and then that means that 43% goes to the rest of us, unless you are a billionaire or up there multi-billionaire, we're not in that one percent range. So the rest of us get to, to divvy out 43%. And if you got, I don't know, 40 million people in poverty in the U.S., and you've got, you know, 53 Americans have more assets than the, the people in the bottom 
50 percent of right. Americans. Three right. people have more assets. Right. Right. So, so the, the only vehicle that I have seen that's going to give us a way of breaking that, here's who gets that dollar, that new dollar that's created. Yeah, the people that will get that people of color, particularly because we haven't had a way of getting it, is through co-ops. Because not only do you get your your salary at the end of the year, and the people that are in ownership, they decide how that profit is divided. And what I like about co-ops also, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching here now. Is that no, no, no? You're right. You're right. Is Absolutely. People first, uh, planet second. Profit third. Now you got to have the profit in the in the equation. No, you can't no, divide no if, you, if you don't make it, yeah. make some money. Yeah. But the right. focus is on people, the people, the the the, the workers, the the uh, customers. The focus is on the people and the decisions. And I manage housing co-ops, and it's amazing how everyday people can make very sound, solid decisions. I mean, I got a a sixteen unit senior co-op that at one point the highest. Education we had with a high school, they make wow. great decisions and hold each other accountable now. And me, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, of course. So okay, no, no, right. you're wonderful. Yeah, that's right, that's right, absolutely. We're gonna take absolutely. our, we're gonna take our, we're gonna take our last break, and we'll be right back. Man, this hour goes by real quick. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's why WOL makes a great, great partner. But it's really not the information. It's when you get the information and you use it. You have to put some action to it, and that's where you get the power. We have brother Roger Green on the program with us today, and he's been putting a lot, a lot of action to the information he has as a state. Was it senator? In the legislation, I was in the uh, state of New York. Yeah, yeah. state assembly of New York. Yeah. Got a lot of information and been putting that information to use, and ended up with a worker cooperative to save the interface hospital, transform it. Okay, and yeah. you hired a lady to be the manager. Now, I've been to the union uh, Cincinnati Union Co-op meetings a couple times uh, here, uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and that's. Uh, uh, I had met Michael Peck, and they invited me down. So I've been on a couple of times. And what I had gotten in this in this question of why union, if you have a worker-owned cooperative, it seemed like the workers would be looking after their interests, which they do do. But I had also gotten down there that when you have management and a board, they're sort of also they have to keep that focus on what's best for the workers. And now I'm here. Yeah. You give me another view. The unions also is a great vehicle, not only one company, but many companies to look at and work with the politicians to create policies that's best for the workers and the customers in the community. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I, and I think that I think that expands to not just the worker co-ops, but the concept of the commons. How we recapture the commons. I think you start with the democratic institutions, uh, enterprises, you know, workplace democracy, and then that expands out to also informing uh, other kinds of public policy interventions that protect the commons and our environment, you know, environmental stewardship, among other things. And so I think it starts there, but making it organically related to other kind of progressive policy interventions that are needed for 
the kind of commonwealth that we need. It works. It works really well. Now, National Co-op Bank is a sponsor of this program, and they're going to be providing some um, equipment where I can go on the road so that when I go out to Cincinnati, I can do interviews out there. And I'd like to come up and visit with you guys. I'd like to meet you. I love what you're doing in your epiphany. Somebody spoke to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's even a god. Okay, you you got hit, and then you moved on it. It, it is great, man. It is great. So, what's next? What's next for the the the, uh, the council? This inner this group. What are you What are you all working? On? I know you you're looking at taking this forty billion dollars and getting those that that work that the uh, creating company there. What else are you doing? Well, we're starting with um, a farm to institution initiative uh, in central Brooklyn. What is that farm, you said, F.A.? Yeah, yeah, an urban farm to institution initiative where actually as we speak, um, the hospital has agreed to purchase uh, food from a worker co-op that we're creating. And that food would also, you know, in, enhance some educational initiatives that we're working on. We've launched a company called Brooklyn Sprout, and they will be producing food for the healthcare sector. Um, but it'll be integrated into some of the high schools where the students will be learning biology, chemistry, physics, robotics. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And while they're doing that, they'll be receiving profits as well, which will be going into a prepaid tuition trust fund for their education. So that's one. And we're working on a conversion of a nursing home to a worker co-op model, unionized worker co-op model, and hopefully a furniture manufacturer for the healthcare sector as well. So those are the the pieces that you know uh, we initially started with, with the hope of eventually creating a cooperative federation that would be similar to Mondragon in Spain. Uh, we were able to take um, 14 elected officials over to Spain from central Brooklyn and from the South Bronx. And so they've been part of a strategic planning process that we're working on with MIT, M the Massachusetts Institute of Technology CoLab, and putting together a systemic approach towards creating an aggregation of unionized worker co-ops that would be aligned with the healthcare sector. So that's what we're working on. I mean, it's more than a notion Dr. King said we have to have infinite hope, you know, but the work is important. And um, I think we're starting to turn the corner, but we're learning. You know, we don't have all the answers and clearly don't have any proprietorship over the concept of what a worker co-op is. And so we're trying to do this in a way that respects dialogue and, you know, learning, and learning by doing, you know, like that. And uh, but it's an, it, it's been exciting and inspirational. I would say that exciting and inspirational. Okay, Vincent Gray is, was a mayor here in D.C. and now he's a city council person, and he's put forth some bills to build a hospital in Ward Eight uh, and to build a couple of stores, and they wanted to be big box stores, and then he was going to lease them out. I went and testified and said, "Won't you make that all co-op?" Well, I, not a lot of knowledge. I did have one of his aides that come on the, the radio program we talked about, and I've talked to her about co-ops. I would like to, sir, if, if you'd be willing, I'd like to see if we can get you down here or get him or some of his people up there to talk about this co-op model and how you 
didn't work and have to communicate. He is really interested in getting jobs in the community, and he's in Ward 7. Ward 7 and Ward 8 are there. Uh, okay. But, well, Ward 8 particularly has food deserts and all of this, and that's where the, the lower economics that's where our people be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, th- th- so, that'd be that'd be interesting to be um, one of the per- persons that is, you know, close friend of mine who uh, has done a lot of work on this is Dr. Phil Thompson, who comes out of MIT, but he's currently was appointed as deputy mayor for policy and strategic initiatives for the city of New York, and has created an economic democracy desk uh, within the city. And which has oversight of small businesses and minority businesses and procurement. And he's working with us very strategically in terms of how the the city's policies uh, can be aligned and support and empowering uh, some of these initiatives, both in the Bronx and in Brooklyn. Um, And so I'm sure he's another person uh, that would be more than happy to meet with the mayor. He He is the deputy mayor of the city of New York and uh, has been empowered by the mayor to uh, create an economic democracy uh, initiative for, again, Brooklyn and the Bronx. Yeah. Well, well, Vincent Gray was the mayor. He's now back on the city council. Uh, Okay. And and he's spearheading this right now. But let's see what we can do. Now, you mentioned laws, but I know that New York has, they put up a $5 million, a million dollar a year for five years to help create worker co-ops. Yeah, how helpful has that been? Um, it's been very helpful. A lot of the help that we've secured has come from a group called um, a Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, which was financed by the city. And they reached over to us in Brooklyn and provided us with uh, help and technical assistance. And so we now have this cross-bridge collaboration between the Bronx and Brooklyn for an economic democracy initiative. And so it's been very helpful. A number of uh, businesses have been started as a result of the work of um, the Green Worker Cooperative Program in the Bronx. And, you know, I've seen it directly. You know, there's a company that provides translation services that started as a co-op, and they may be aligned with the healthcare sector that needs translation services. So, yeah, that, you know, little seed corn from the city. Um, it was five million. I think it's grown to seven million this year, and I believe it's been baseline. So it'll be in the budget for at least another four years. I think that that's an example of why it's important to have labor community working together to push progressive agendas like this. Fantastic. We got one minute left. What what message would you like to leave people with? I think. You know, I guess I'll go back to what Dr. King said in this crisis that we're in, crisis in, in our democracy. Worker co-ops really are democratic uh, enterprises and that they could address in part this crisis that we are seeing today. The power of democratic practice or participatory democracy being expanded into the workforce where folks live over eight hours a day can, in fact, empower the rest of our civil society. And so in that case, I would say, you know, we can always have infinite hope. Yeah. Infinite hope. Thank you, sir. Listen, I know you love what you're doing, so I don't even have to ask you that question. I can need oh, yeah, comes I across in everything you say. I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Across. No question. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for being on and for taking time. Everybody out there, have a great week, and please live and work cooperatively. We'll see you next Thursday. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AMWO at 95.9.